I want to greet you in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest here, I want to extend a special welcome to you. I see several people I don't know, and so I hope to meet you after the service. I also want to invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 31. And we have Bibles to hand out. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Somebody can bring you a Bible right back there. We also have Bibles in Spanish. Uh, we do have people in our uh, community that their first language is Spanish. And we have people who are trying to practice their learning Spanish. And so you're invited to take one of those. If you don't have a Bible, you can, uh, you can keep this as your own. But I want to invite you to turn to, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 25. We might have it on the screen here. We've got a new computer. We're working it out. So I invite you to listen, if you would, or uh, read along. But I also invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. We are in this sermon series that we're calling God is Green. And this is a bit, look right there. <laughs> Nothing like Bible Gateway, friends. <laughs> An Internet Explorer right there. Uh, we're in this uh, sermon series called uh, God is Green. And this is a strange text for us. But uh, we believe it is good news. So I invite you to hear it. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me, and I was thirsty. You gave me some to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me to your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and ever give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you. You cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Ouch. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. We hope you may be seated. So when I was nine years old, my family moved to this quaint little town in northern Iowa called Mason City. And Mason City was this town of about 28,000 people. It was made up of blue-collar workers that had this they were full of tenacity and grit. 
Now, I've lived in Midwestern towns most of my life with these small, with small stints in Illinois and in Indiana. And I, th- I thought I knew what a Midwestern winter was actually like. But there was nothing like this. The wind and the snow and the gray seemed like it lasted forever. And just a few days after we moved there to town when I was about nine, my parents sought out things. They sought out activities, sports, whatever. They just were going to get, they were going to do whatever it takes to get me and my brother connected with other kids in town. So within just a couple of weeks, I think it may have been only about two weeks, I was signed up for the local swim club. At my first swim meet, my dad had one of those huge 1980s movie cameras. You know what I'm talking about? These were the things that weighed about 30 pounds. You might even be able to eBay one. You know, these are the kind that sit on your shoulder. And uh, they had just come out, and I think my parents paid a small fortune for that thing. Well, after the swim meet, later that evening, they, they get a call. And on the other end was my swim coach, Steve Hugo. This is a recent picture. I think we might have it of Steve. This was this week. My dad is actually with Coach Hugo right now. Now, we didn't know him very well back then. Even at my first swim meet, we didn't know him. But he called and he said he had found a video, a a case with a video camera in it. It had my dad's name and, and it had my dad's number in it. And so obviously, my dad had left this really expensive, gigantic video camera at the swim meet, and, and he, so he said, oh, coach, where can I go to pick it up? I, I remember this. I remember my dad on the phone with Coach Hugo, and my dad had this really curious kind of peculiar look, and I heard him say, um, okay. And then he, he looked at my mom, and he said, I left the video camera at the swim meet, and Coach Hugo said that he was going to bring it by because he was riding past our house on his way home. My mom said, what do you mean he was riding past our house on the way home? It was 15 degrees and there was snow up to your belly button. But within a few minutes, here came Coach Hugo. I remember looking out my window. Here came Coach Hugo. He was riding his bike down the freshly plowed road. He was poking, his little face was poked out of the, the fuzziest hat you've ever seen. And his body was wrapped up in this gigantic Mason City swimming parka. He dropped off the video camera, and before he decided to ride home, I remember my dad kind of looking at him like he was weird, and he, he said, Coach, you want me to give you a ride home? And then it was Steve's turn to look back at my dad as if he was going crazy. Today, if you're in Mason City, you may spot Steve Hugo on his bicycle. Rain, snow, shine, it doesn't matter. Steve Hugo was the first person I'd ever seen ride a bicycle, not for fun, although he, he thought it was fun, and not just for exercise, although he was cut like a Greek god, and he still is, and, and not because he was poor. He was the cheapest man alive, but he definitely was not poor. He was the first person that I'd ever seen that chose to ride his bicycle as a m- means of transportation. When I was about 13, I remember asking Coach Hugo if, he had a driver's license. And he would look at me like, of course I have a driver's license. And then I said, is that white van in your driveway broken down? He said, no. So I said, why don't you drive it? And his response was really interesting. And I remember it. It left me a little bit uneasy. And I've been thinking about it for years now. He said, well, I save a ton of money riding my bicycle. 
I get to eat whatever I want because I ride my bicycle. Riding my bicycle is good for me, he said. And then he said, and this is where it got me. It's good for you when I ride my bicycle. Hugo didn't spend a lot of time explaining things. He definitely wasn't a religious man, but he just, in in those few words and in his everyday actions, this statement was prophetic in my life. Since then, I've been on this anthropological, sociological, theological pursuit. I've been asking the question, how do my actions both those that I'm aware of and those that I'm not aware of, how do they impact the lives of others? What did Steve Hugo mean when he said, riding my bike makes your life better? This text that we read here, it's, it's hard to, a story out about a bicycle and a story about eternal life or eternal punishment, that, those things don't seem to go together, but, but I kind of think they do. Even though this text is a disconcerting one, it, it's left people uneasy for a long time. This text, these, these are the words of Jesus. And usually Jesus doesn't seem very harsh, but these words are harsh. And they can even seem kind of violent. And, and I think that Jesus uses words like this just to really shake things up. He says that in the last days, there when God decides, there at the end of time, when God decides to rid the world of all horrors, you'll see that the Son of Man will come in and he'll land on a throne and he'll come in his heavenly glory and all of the nations will take notice. Think about those words. All of the nations will take notice. And then he, the Son of Man, who is King Jesus, will begin to do the work of judgment. The sheep, those who are, those who are on the, will be set to the right side. Those who have done what the king has wanted them to do will be separated from the goats on the left. Those that did not do what the king wanted them to do. And one group has eternal life and the other group has eternal punishment. And Matthew's point seems really, really clear in this text. Our behavior towards our neighbor is, beha- is our behavior towards Jesus himself. Now, when we read a text like this, our our heart kind of skips a beat. I mean, our mind begins to start racing and we immediately start taking kind of a personal inventory. We consider how we've behaved towards others over the last week. We consider how we treated our neighbors. We quickly ask ourselves because we're judging ourselves. When did I see a hungry person or a stranger or or a prisoner? And, And how did I respond to them? I mean, frankly, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. So asking that question... About my last week, uh, I'll be honest, I don't really know. You know the surprising thing about this text? I'd have thought that the people who eventually became sheep and the people who eventually were goats, the people who would be in the right and the people who would be in the wrong, I kind of thought that the people who were serving actually kind of knew that they were doing something right and, and that the people who weren't, I thought like Jiminy Cricket would be talking to them. You know, their conscience. Like maybe they knew that they were doing something wrong or even rebellious. But what's surprising and even provocative about this text is this. Everyone is ignorant. Nobody knows what they've done. No one seems to know what their actions or their lack of action means. No one in the text has considered that their, their actions have lasting implications. Not the sheep, not the goats, 
not one person ever considered that the small things they do have an eternal impact. They just sort of went about their business and did it accidentally. And so when Jesus talks to them, they are all surprised. They're shocked. They're they're ignorant. The sheep are put on the right side and they say, when did we see you? We didn't even know that. And then the goats were put on the left and they asked the the exact same question. When did we ever see you? I think that maybe Matthew and, and Jesus, I think they're trying to, I think they're trying to provoke us a little bit. Like this text is kind of a, like this text is kind of a setup. Like we're being tricked to ask, when did I see you? What is it in my life or our life altogether that keeps me or keeps us from having to pay attention? I mean, we, we want to be sheep, right? I mean, that, that's what we would like to do. We want to be on the right side, but we don't want to accidentally be sheep. We don't accidentally fall into it. So we ask the question, what are, what are we not seeing? What, what are we ignorant to? How do our actions, how do my actions, both those that I'm aware of and the ones that I'm not aware of, make the lives of others better? What did Steve Hugo mean when he said, riding my bike makes your life better? That's the $25,000 question for us. So in this series that we're calling, that we've called God is Green, we've been doing this and we've been having these discussions about creation care and water And tonight we're talking about mobility because we want to consider the things that are right in front of us that we cannot see. Those things that we take for granted that have an impact, a real impact on our neighbor and our world in a way that we've we've just never considered before. So this series over the last few weeks has actually been the start of a longer conversation of discovery where we want to begin to be able to pose hard questions and not have to have cheap or easy answers. So in order to ask those questions, we've set the foundation. God the creator cares and calls us to care for the natural environment. We are to protect it. We're to make something of it. We're to steward it. But God also cares about the built environment. And in this text, the characters are are shocked when they realize that King Jesus is actually so close so present, so among the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger, that it means that everything that was done on their behalf, it's like it was done to him. And most of us are so ignorant that we don't consider that King Jesus is in the systems that we create, or the buildings that we build, or the roads where we travel. Until the last few years, I never, never have considered that my choices whether that be where I live or where I go get groceries or how I get around impacts my neighbor. Neighbor, I have never had to consider how my choices for transportation or mobility actually reveal my values. From the beginning of time, people traveled in one way. It was through a mode that we call walking, whether it was them or an animal that carried them. From Adam to Paul to George Washington, they all got around in the same way. Now we have advanced technology, and advanced technology in relation to mobility over the last couple hundred years is absolutely amazing. 
I, I've been thinking about this. In the last month, I have walked, gotten to ride in a car, been on a bicycle, on a bus, on a boat, on a train, in a plane, and I still don't like green eggs and ham. In 2005, when I moved here to Oklahoma, I was blown away when I pulled into a Sonic drive through and I saw a girl sitting on the back of a horse there. I thought, where in the world have I moved? But frankly, that was the first and the last time that I've seen that. Because even here in Oklahoma, we have built an infrastructure that is dependent on one form or another, uh, excuse me, on build, uh, built on one form of mobility. And that's the automobile. If you can't afford an automobile, you might be in trouble. The most costly form of mobility for individuals, families, and cities is the automobile. And we remain in ignorance if we simply assume that advanced technology, uh, when, it comes, is, when it comes to us in terms of mobility, actually means progress. And we're doubly ignorant if we assume that advanced technology in terms of travel and mobility means progress for all, because it doesn't. Most of the world does not have a car. Instead, the right way to think about advanced technology is not about progress when it comes to mobility and trans transportation. We should be thinking about advanced technology in terms of mobility and as we think about social justice. Jesus is not interested in progress just for a few. He is interested in shalom, peace, help, wholeness. He's interested in it for the built environment. And this means that equality is for everyone in terms of quality of life, whether it happens in people on the interior or whether it happens on the exterior. He wants no one excluded. Did you know that a third of Americans are too old too young, too poor, too infirm, or simply are not interested, and they do not or cannot drive at all. And older African Americans and Latinos are twice as likely depend, to depend on public transit as Caucasians. This means that the poor, uh, poor, that poor people and minorities have less access to parks and green spaces and recreation centers and have less opportunity to go sit under the shade of a tree. The lack of infrastructure when it, comes to, when it comes to alternative forms of mobility that means that they also have access to fewer jobs. The inability to drive a car impacts the most vulnerable in our city, children, teenagers, non-driving seniors. And for a long time, I've been completely ignorant of this. This week... I, I talked to a couple people who are connected to the 8th Street Church that are not ignorant of this. They have intentionally chosen, like Steve Hugo, to serve their city by embracing alternate forms of transportation, because, not because they are forced to, but because they can. Because they're choosing it for their neighbor. Silas Day started to ride his bike as a sole mode of transportation in 2013. And when I asked him why, he said, well, the mo it's the most reasonable form of transportation. Also, if you know Silas, you know that he works in public health and, and he believes that biking everywhere is good exercise and it's good for the environment. But if you know Silas, you know that it is so, so, so much deeper than that. Silas is like a wealth of brilliance and wisdom. So I was talking with Silas, and these texts with the theme of ignorance w was on my mind. So I was surprised to hear what he said 
with these themes in my mind. He started to talk to me about mobility as a positive experience. He said, this is what I noticed. The web of network that we call Oklahoma City, he started to notice and feel a part of it when he, when he rode his bike or when he walked places. Instead of having to, you know, having to drive to access the city, he said that the city became accessible to him. He found it enhanced the relationship that he had with the city and the people that he, and the people that were in it. And, and I'm, I'm just quoting the things Silas says. He says he could hear the conversations. He could smell the smells. He felt more rooted in the city. He said it was an embodied experience. And when he started riding his bike, he said this was an aha moment, like he moved out of ignorance into something that was new knowledge for him. He said at a certain level, the capacity to do harm is so much smaller when I walk or ride a bike than when I'm in a car. And he was quick to say that no one intends to do harm in a car or otherwise. And he even said that there are distances that are appropriate to drive. But considering that 70% of trips in the car are actually less than two miles, there are times when it's inappropriate. But he, he also said, as a person interested in public health, I serve the city by being at least one person that doesn't contribute to the stress that a complicated infrastructure built on cars places on our city or the residents in it. Silas has this background in anthropology, and you know what he does? He rides his bike to notice. That's it. He rides his bike and he walks to notice so that he won't be ignorant of himself or others. And one thing has been made clear to him. Riding a bike or walking gives a better perspective of distance, better relationships with space and resources, or the lack thereof that are in that space or not in that space for the people who live there. He, he said that on a bike or walking or on a bus, a person doesn't pass something to go buy something that they think that they want more. In other words, you're not passing a grocery store to go to a different grocery store. But when you walk or ride a bus or you're part of public transportation, you have to have a relationship with the distance to that store. And you have to recognize that store. And when you recognize that store and you go to that store, it changes the neighborhood, it changes the neighbor, and it changes the local economy. He said, in a way, I appreciate everything more because of the simplicity it brings. When he lived in Norman, he found himself riding home after work past a row of restaurants about the time of closing. He said the conversations of the workers could be heard on a bike. That affords you the ability, and these are his exact words, that affords you the ability to bear witness to real people doing real life in your city, and they live right next door. Your eyes are open. These are his words. Your eyes are open to the realities of people unlike you and unlike me. And you can see that on a bike. Remember the question of the sheep and the goats? When did we see you? Driving, he says, is not about distance. Instead, it's a relationship that has to do with speed and traffic flow. So the relationship isn't with neighbors, the relationship that we have with time. It reminded me when he said that of an old quote attributed to Gandhi where he said, there's more to life than simply seeing how fast we can get through it. 
This is, what, this is the same thing that our friend Connor McMichael told me. Connor's an OU grad with a background in architecture and an interest in city planning, and he chooses to walk and ride his bicycle as his main form of mobility. He said, when I started riding, it was to save money, which is, I think, kind of the main theme at the beginning. But quickly, he learned how freeing it was. He said it was so freeing, in fact, that he rode in the rain and the snow and whatever because he started to notice. These are his words. He started to notice the impact on his heart and his spirit and even his mood. He said uh, he exper- his experience uh, could be summed up in this, though, that he became more aware to the connection that he started to develop among neighbors, both implicitly and explicitly. He said, even though an introvert, there is a natural connection. His main mode of travel, plus his studies in architecture and school, became, began to cause him to ask this important question. What is my full responsibility in providing spaces for people, and how do I impact their mental and their physical needs? That is a great question. Laura Everett is a pastor and a bicycle commuter that uh, lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, She wrote a book called Holy Spokes. Check it out. It's awesome. She started commuting around Boston on her bicycle and and walking soon after her car died. And and it happened one evening after Bible study. So after commuting uh, by bicycle, she was no longer, uh, she 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 found that she was no longer limited to uh, seeing the world through her car windshield. And, and as Silas said, the world looks a whole lot different when you don't look at it through a windshield. But she also noticed that streets were very political. She said roads are political. There were people in her city that she began to see were valued more than others. She said, noticing in this way, sometimes this showed up in the very roads where she traveled. There were those roads that God plowed first in the winter. They were fixed first in the summer. There were those that were never fixed at all. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the, the injustice was, showed up in, as certain schools provided buses for kids and, or safe sidewalks that led to the school while others on the lower in, income side of town were forced to walk in, kids were forced to walk in the street, sometimes over great distances. Changing her perspective on mobility allowed her to connect some dots that she had never thought of before the advantaged in her town received the advantages connor silas pastor laura it's it's really interesting these three integrate their personal choices and their professional lives and their faith convictions and Connor said that we, we must find ways to advocate for alternate modes of transportation. It is essential that we become closer. He said separatism is bad for community. When people spread out and they're isolated on their vehicles on a path at 75 miles an hour, unaware of who's next to them because they're texting, we, we don't notice our neighbor in those in those situations, and we don't notice those who live in our neighborhoods. We don't recognize that perhaps they are secluded or even abandoned, so we can't care for them. It's his desire to be part of a city, and he said this directly to me, and part of a church who knows the people that they live by and do ministry with. He said, I am looking to condense my life geographically. 
Pastor Laura said the same thing. She said she began to notice a new perspective of mobility that that allowed her to begin to see things that she had never noticed before. As a driver, she never had to plan, take inventory, seek, seek out the closest place to shower or face the fact that there were no grocery stores near her or to admit the real hard reality that there is a lack of infrastructure for all forms of mobility. And this is directly connected to racism and violence. Her movement through the city, she said, as she walked and rode a bike, was a spiritual awakening. Passing over a six-lane highway, she didn't even ever realize how her city was built, or why it was built, or who it hurt when it got built, or the way it was built, and how it was built for her neighbors, or how it hurt her neighbors. Sitting behind a wheel, she never, she never ever had to ask, who counts here? Riding a bike did. Walking a bicycle, uh, walking did. Sean Banesh is a pastor that wrote this book called The Bikeable Church. You should, you should read it. It's fabulous. And he says, whether or not we realize it, our transportation, how we get around, we should think about this, actually defines us. You know this is true. Road rage, anger, hostility, impatience, speed. Another guy I know that my, my friend Paul Jones and I endearingly call Buddhist Dave says, when you drive, you're never in traffic. You are traffic. Matthew 25 is a text of judgment. And, and I'll remind you what I said last week. Whenever we read about God's judgment in the Bible, it is just grace in disguise. God's judgment is is about justice, and justice is just simply God bringing the world back into balance. And the text is to needle us. It's to poke at us, to see if we'll open our eyes and recognize our our ignorance and and begin a conversation. In what ways are we advantaged, disadvantaged? In what ways do we see our neighbor? In what ways do we consider the way in which we get around the city or the way in which we have seen it built? Does it hurt? Does it help? Is it good for, the, for all? This text, I want to make sure you hear this. This text and this sermon is not a shaming piece. This is not saying shame on you for not riding your bicycle and drive. We have three cars in our driveway. Way too many. I don't, I don't want anybody leaving here and saying, Chris is saying, if you don't ride your bike, you're not a Christian. No, 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 that is not what I'm saying. I'm with Barbara Brown Taylor when she says, uh, when she says this. It, it, when I try to make a law out of the gospel, there's a problem. It's a way to see something new. And as a matter of grace, I think we can learn, on, we can lean on what Connor said to me this week. He said, a good church and a good Christian is a good citizen. A good, church, a good church and a good Christian is a good citizen that cares to engage in the larger conversation, that fosters diversity in community, and looks to change an inner dialogue. He said, I think, I think God wants people to seek out their passions and to live them forward for the common good. I think that's what Terry has done. Maybe that's a little bit of what my swim coach meant. This text needles us. 
And it gives us hope, but it gives us hope because the same Jesus that is close to the poor and the disadvantaged, that is close in, in, uh, in, in, in nature and in the built environment, the good news is that Jesus is equally as close to us. And he's guiding us. And he's helping us as we move forward for the sake of the common good. And we know it because we get to enter into a conversation about the natural environment and the built environment, and we are living into the vision of Matthew as we do this. In the last days, that is our hope. God will rid the world of all of its horrors. The Son of Man, Jesus, will take his place, and he'll come into the heavenly glory, and he'll do so by helping us take notice. I've wondered if we need to change part of our... uh, part of our creed, our responsive reading that we say. Maybe just for the night, maybe not forever, but we are not all the same. But we are all ready for transportation. <laughs> this is the beginning of that conversation. We consider this natural world. We consider the built environment. We consider the Jesus that is closer to us than we ever imagined that he could be. And as he is close to us and our neighbors, We do not want to be ignorant any longer. So Pastor Michaela is going to lead us in a prayer before we come to the table. And so I invite you to take a posture of prayer and begin the inner dialogue so that you might begin the outer dialogue with neighbors around you. It can be hard to know how to respond. And so I invite us to respond by confessing what is true and asking for what we need. So would you pray with me? Lord, we hear the words, when did we ever see you? And we confess that we are afraid of saying the very same thing. We confess, God, that we can't see you sometimes, or that we don't look for you in the faces around us. And so we ask for your grace to see you in our neighbors and to love them as we love you. We confess, O God, that we feel overwhelmed at times, helpless, or even at times guilty by the unjust systems that affect all of us. And so we ask for the grace of discernment as we navigate our own choices and compassion as we navigate around the choices of others. We confess that sometimes the problems we and our neighbors face, whether it be on our own block or in our city or across our nation, they feel so great that a solution feels impossible. And so in this, we ask for the grace to walk with you, Jesus, you who have intimate knowledge of injustice and have overcome it. Help us to listen to you, to wait on you, and then to have the courage to act in obedience whenever and however your invitation comes. You are the Christ, reconciling all things to yourself, and yet we confess that at times we deny that things need reconciling at all. And we confess that at other times, 
we believe we can reconcile all things on our own. And so we ask for the grace of being reconciled ourselves. Would you reconcile us to yourself, Holy One? And through you, may you reconcile us to your creation and your people. And we pray this together through the spirit and power of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The good news is that we are not expected to have our lives together or to immediately figure out how to have our lives together or to go from this place embodying perfection. The good news is that there is one who has embodied perfection for us and freely offers us what he has and who he is so that we can become what we could never become on our own. In just a moment, we will receive communion together. And so I invite those who will help us to come forward. At our church, we say this every week, but I never want it to become something that we don't think about or receive. We say that this is Jesus's table. It's not an 8th Street table or a Church of the Nazarene table. Jesus is the one who invites us here. And so if you are in need of and ready to receive the work that Jesus Christ offers and the grace that he gives, he invites you to this table. And because we don't want any barriers, we have decided that our bread will always be gluten-free and our cup will always be non-alcoholic so that everyone who wants to taste and see that the Lord is good can come. We remember in this meal that on the night that Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he was sitting at table with his friends, and he broke bread, and he said, this is my body which, was, which is broken for you. And he passed the cup, and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And every time we take and eat this meal together, we not only remember what Christ has done for us, we receive again and again and again that which we need. So in just a moment, you will be invited to exit through your left side of your row and come to a server that's standing before you. We invite you to come with your hands held cupped, ready to receive the bread, dip it into the cup, and eat. And we do this because the gift of God is not something to be taken, but only something that we receive. When you are ready, friends, you are invited to come and receive what you need. <laughs>